Professor Barish, welcome to this podcast. Oh, well, thank you. I'm happy to be here. Uh, first, a very late uh, congratulations to the Nobel Prize, of course. Well, it's always well received. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, you received the, the prize in 2017. Correct. For the finding of gravity waves. Gravity. You know, gravitational waves. Gravitational waves, thank you. No, so, so why? Sorry? So we, we, we couldn't use the word gravity. Why? Even though gravity wave sounds right, because uh, somebody usurped that name before us. Really? Well, like, like um, fluid dynamics, like water waves. Okay. Or okay. come from gravity. Yeah. So people who do fluid dynamics have already termed the word gravity waves. So we that's why we use the more formal word, gravitational waves. That's very interesting to know, actually. <laughs> tell, tell me, is it true that someone, I read somewhere, that the, the actual LIGO project, the actual... Uh, Physical? Sort of, no, the, the actual uh, sort of system that detected the gravitational yeah, waves uh-huh. is that... The, the world's 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 biggest instrument in some way well i don't know how you measure size but it's uh i mean it, it's not physically bigger than say the cern accelerator mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that's actually larger it's uh four kilometers on a side uh-huh, so it's okay. a, an l Shaped uh, yeah. uh, with four kilometers on a side the cern accelerator is bigger than, than okay. that uh I think uh, maybe uh, it's arguably the most precise instrument in the world. Yeah, because that was my next question. Yeah. So it's, it's the most precise it, instrument. It, it's big because um, even though we're pretty good at making it precise, it makes we get we get precision kind of for free with size also. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. And uh, so the bigger you make it, the better. But if we made it much bigger than four kilometers. And we have to worry about the curvature of the Earth. Uh-huh. And laser beams are straight, so we have to kind of, uh, and then we'd have to be up in the sky and so forth. So four kilometers was as big as we dared when we made it. That's interesting. And uh, can you in some way define the precision scale of this instrument? Yeah, we have to measure an effect that's one part in 10 to the 21. <laughs> okay. <That'd be> <laughs> so it's is really small. And uh, yeah, it's a lot of zeros and a one. Uh, and the reason, if it's a kilometer long, then we actually have the instrument itself has to measure one part in 10 to the 18. So it's uh, because we've made it a thousand uh, meters long, a kilometer. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So, uh, so it's uh, precise. It's actually uh, because what they do when I said we're not as big as the big accelerator, it's CERN, but we measure an effect that's smaller than what they measure. The the effect that we measure is one one thousandth, mm-hmm. the size of a proton. It's it's, it's incredible, actually. Yeah. I, I sometimes I wonder if if people in general realize what you can do with science these days. Yeah, <laughs> even me, <laughs> even so, you. That's yeah. that's good to hear. Um, I was thinking, is there any chance? at all that the measurement is incorrect in some way? No. Uh, um, <laughs> that's a good question, of course. Um, we were, it, There was enough confidence to give us an award. Yes, so, obviously. So it was probably true then. But now it's even more because mm-hmm. right after the uh, uh, Nobel announcement, which was 
about this time, almost exactly uh, two years ago. Mm. Uh, the, uh, we announced a second finding, which was not the one that we got the Nobel Prize for, but seeing a different kind of collision in the universe. The first collision that we uh, saw that saw gravitational waves was black holes colliding. Mm -hmm. Since they're black holes, they're only seen by us. So as good as we can do, make a convincing case, there's not kind of an alternate. So you could argue that maybe we fooled ourselves. Uh, but uh, right after that, we announced something else, which is the collision of what are called neutron stars. Mm -hmm. Neutron stars, I, I won't explain, but they're made out of real matter. They're very compact nuclear matter. Because they're nuclear matter and not black holes, they also give, uh, uh, a, uh, give off radiation, electromagnetic waves, light, radio waves, so forth and so on, gamma rays. And so when we saw that, um, it turned out that there was a satellite that looked at gamma rays that was looking at the same part of the sky at the same time. Mm -hmm. And two seconds after our observation, they saw gamma rays. And then we alerted the whole astronomical community, and they pointed every kind of instrument you could imagine, radio waves and uh, microwaves and so forth. And all of that was seen from this object that we saw, the gravitational mm -hmm. wave. So uh, at this point, no, it's, there's, it's certain that we saw gravitational waves. Yeah, yeah I see. Fantastic. Um, Tell me, I, I, I mean, I'm not a, I'm not a physicist, but I know at least a little about, about it. And and one thing that I realized is that gravity is not a force in the traditional sense. Uh, do you agree with that? It's a curvature of uh, space yeah, time, yeah. rather. In in uh, Newton's time, of course, it is a force because. All the forces, yet we have to really try to understand how they exert themselves. But in Newton, of course, the most successful physics theory ever was Newton's 1680 mm. uh, writing down his theory of unified gravity, which explained mm. everything, mm. except that it didn't – everything physically that you saw about gravity, but he never explained uh, why when you jump up the Earth so-called pulls you down, which your teacher told you when mm -hmm. you were a little yeah, kid. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Uh, but he never explained why. No. Uh, it wasn't until Einstein used curvature of space-time that it's uh, explained as, as a distortion of space and time. Yeah, because, I mean, the forces in the, in the atom, for example, it's another kind of force. I mean, it's, it's not explained in the same way. Would you really say that gravity is a force? Well, but we don't know quite how it's how it's made it either for okay. electromagnetic waves. What is it that pulls to, okay. if you have a plus charge and minus charge, I mean, we have formulas and stuff, but what, what is it that actually pulls them? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, and, and so we have ways of kind of trying to represent it. It's certainly different than gravity, which is a, a distortion of space and time. So it's, it's different. But uh, we get down to the level that... Uh, in science, we phenomenologically describe nature, but we don't always know deep underneath what caused nature to be the way it is. Mm -hmm. I think that's a very fascinating issue, actually. I mean, do you think that we ever will have an intuitive sort of concept of how nature works, or will it just be formulas explaining experiments, uh, results? 
Uh, like in quantum physics, for example. Well, quantum physics is really difficult because we can't visualize it very much and no. it breaks rules uh, that we're used to, like yeah. something can happen here and way away and interact with each other, which is what quantum computing's about. Yeah. Uh, but in, if we forget quantum physics for a minute, which is uh, strange to see physically and represent, uh, basically we describe the phenomenological world that we see. Mm-hmm. Whether it's something not very uh, important, I mean, not very funny, like uh, a ball rolling down an inclined plane, or you know the effects of gravity, or the uh, fact that uh, a plus and minus charge attract each other and two plus charges repel each other. It's kind of phenomenological. We describe nature phenomenologically. We may have formulas underneath that help us describe it more quantitatively. Um, but the problem is, going back to your thing, is we have, we have two different... We have a different language. The language of physics mm-hmm. truly is mathematics, mm. not uh, English or Swedish <laughs> or Italian or something. And so when we try to describe nature in the wrong language English, Swedish, instead Mm. of mathematics usually we're cheating we can't Mm. really describe what we see mathematically Mm -hmm. so it's just we don't quite have the right language to do that Mm. that doesn't disturb scientists very much because we learn this language just like you know more than one language it's the right language Mm. to describe science uh, physics especially so uh, so a little bit it's a semantic issue not that we're talking we're trying to describe uh, what's happening in a language that isn't really suited for it mm. okay I, 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 see, I see what you mean but you also say that quantum f- physics is something else because it's not quantum physics is something else because uh, it breaks <laughs> some kind of logical rules that yeah you know, like entanglement. And yeah, yeah. And so it's it's another level of complication. But uh, if we just stick with Newton for a minute, uh, the attractive force between two bodies is inversely proportional to how not just how far apart it is, but how far apart it is squared. So how do you visualize that in English? It's not really quite mm. right. But if you see it mathematically... Yeah. Okay, you may not or you may understand why it's inversely proportional to the square of the distance, but it's, that's a separate question of how well, and that's, that's understanding Einstein's theory and so forth. But, uh, but describing English is a double problem. How do yeah, you I really describe you even Newton's theory of gravity mm. uh, in, in uh, uh, verbal language? I, I think it's really tough. But do you think we ever ever will have a quantum theory that is intuitively, you know, understandable? Well, will we even have a quantum theory that we can reconcile with, with a gravity? non-quantum theory? Mm. Yeah. So physics is a terrible problem, has a terrible problem. We have two fantastic theories of physics. Uh, Einstein's theory, mm. uh, general relativity, which describes you know everything from back to the early universe, the universe very well, anything that's going very, very fast near the speed of light relativistically. 
And then we have another theory that describes everything on the quantum level, and you can bang particles together at CERN and mm. pretty well predict everything that happens. Uh, but those two theories don't intersect with each other. And there should be one theory of physics, not yeah. two. Yeah. So what does it mean to have two theories of physics? We am, Of course, trying to have a unified theory is Einstein worked on the last decades of his life. And yeah. Others have. We, the problem, I think, is we don't really have the right clues to bring those two theory, to figure out how to bring those two theories together. To try to solve it theoretically, some great minds have tried for decades. Yeah, right? string theory is a one. String theory has, a, as possible because it, in principle, can deal with both things on a quantum level and non-quantum level. But it has another problem, and that is that it works in 11 dimensions, or mm. whatever, however it's formed. Mm. And we live in a world that's four dimensions. Mm. So when it tries to, when we try to use it to predict something in our world, which we see as a four-dimensional world, we have to reduce the 11 dimensions down to four dimensions. Turns out that's not a unique. So we say they. The words are they curl the dimensions we don't see curl up on each other, mm. but the important thing is it's not unique how you go from eleven dimensions to the observable world, which makes string theory not a predictive theory. Mm -hmm. So the problem with string theory, as right as it might be in some ways and as attractive as it might be, at this stage, uh, doesn't really predict nature very very much. And therefore, it cannot be falsified in a sense. Yeah, uh, or, or, that's that's a problem. Uh, yeah. It's pure metaphysics. Yeah, yeah, then. yeah. So it's very good at solving some theoretical problems, mm. but a good theory should be able to be falsified, as you yeah. said, and should be able to maybe predict things that we haven't seen yet. Mm. Well, when Einstein made his theory of general relativity, um, he solved a small problem, which was that the orbit of Mercury around the sun wasn't yeah. quite what was predicted by Newton's theory. But that's not good enough. I mm. mean, we don't usually change our understanding of nature because somebody explained something that was hard to explain. Mm -hmm. Usually we demand that it, if so, then you should be able to explain something new. In Einstein's case, he did. Mm. He basically predicted that light would bend if it went near a massive object yeah. and how much it would bend. Which was shown about 100, exactly 100 years ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 1919. Yeah, so he predicted this in 1915. Uh, yeah. And then it was shown in a full eclipse of the sun when some stars went behind yeah. it in 1919 mm. by Arthur Eddington. Mm. And uh, so it not only solved the problem, but then predicted something. Yeah. So as difficult as it is in a theory, it had to be taken seriously because of that. Mm. It also predicted gravitational waves, which later <laughs> took 100 years. But, but the prediction in what I'm saying, the fact is it solved the problem, but it predicted something new that we wouldn't have mm. been able to explain otherwise. And then they went out and measured it, and sure enough, light bends, and it bends exactly as Einstein's theory said it should bend. Mm, so. mm. One more question about the, uh, the actual discovery that you were awarded the Nobel Prize for. Do you think that gravitational waves ever will have a practical impact on what kind of technology we yeah. develop and so yeah. on? I have no idea. No. Uh, 
My prejudice would be no because it's such a small effect, but I don't know. Mm. But let me reflect on your question a little bit. Yeah. Because I think it's – so for the next person, you won't ask quite the same question. Because <laughs> I think it's not quite the right question. Okay. So if we do pure curiosity-driven research, which mm. is what I do, mm. and the, those words, I don't like it too much, but it is what we do. We basically are driven by our trying to understand nature and our curiosity about nature. So if we do pure curiosity-driven research, and sometimes it costs a lot of money, um, um, is it just pure knowledge, or is it useful in some ways to mankind and society? And my answer is that one of the reasons, and probably the main reason why we get much more support than artists, Mm. which also do something good, for creativity and so forth, but is that uh, more, more often than we might guess, it does have an impact on society and people and so forth. So, but you can't, since it's curiosity-driven, you can't ask the, you shouldn't ask the question for each thing that's learned by some curiosity curiosity-driven question that mm. somebody answered. Better would be to say that that in doing this kind of research, curiosity-driven research, does it have uh, also, in addition to learning about knowledge, any significant impact on, on us as people and so forth? So I'll give you a couple examples from mm. my own life. Mm. Okay, so I've spent my whole life doing curiosity-driven research, and uh, some of which has worked, some of which it hasn't, and then this particular one we won a prize for. So, but what's happened around me? In in when I was a student in Berkeley, there was a, a experiment down in in Berkeley at that time that tested another uh, theory of Einstein's. Mm-hmm. It was called uh, stimulated. Em- uh, it was called stimulated emission. Mm. Einstein predicted that, maybe 1919 or somewhere around then. And uh, it was an effect that uh, basically uh, focused uh, uh, um, photons. And uh, that was proven in a laboratory in the 1950s or early 60s, around that time. And in fact, it was awarded a Nobel Prize mm-hmm. Okay, for, for showing a theory of Einstein's, which is stimulated emission. Nobody had any idea that it might be useful if your predecessor had asked the discoverers Mm. at that time. And it was about a decade later that (coughs) people started to recognize that it had some uh, use, and that is that tended to focus photons, Mm -hmm. which photons are light, and uh, it was realized that you can use that because we like to focus light when we do it in a flashlight or something. This is much more so. And it basically is the principle of the laser. Yeah. Okay. The laser is a huge industry. It runs everything from CD players to mm. you know, operations on your eyes. And so the, the, the discovery itself, at the time it was discovered, they had no idea that it was useful. It's a you know, multi-billion dollar industry, lasers, one form or another. And it came about from absolutely a pure curiosity-driven physics Mm -hmm. experiment. 
Maybe that's anomalous, but I'll give you a second example. Please do. Both from near me. Yeah, okay. please do. So the second example is a nuclear physics principle, nothing to do with Einstein. Mm. I, I was at Cornell uh, doing some research at Cornell. Again, it wasn't me, down the hall, if <laughs> you want. It was an experiment that uh, was... Uh, that demonstrated another principle of nuclear physics called nuclear magnetic resonance, mm. something you've probably never heard of. Mm, mm. And uh, that also won a Nobel Prize. So if you go back to the 1980s or so, it won, I don't know the no year exactly, it mm. won a Nobel Prize for two or three people. And it proved uh, uh, a, an important effect in nuclear physics. Again, nobody, certainly not the people that did it, had any idea that it uh, had any use. And it was again, probably at least a decade later, that it was recognized that it could be used in an important way for medicine. And it's now, I guess, the best imaging device we have called an MRI. They, uh -huh. of course, erase the word nuclear because nobody likes that <laughs> if it has anything to do with, <laughs> with doing something to yeah. you. But the MRI uh, has some imaging, so it has some added features, but the underneath physics mm -hmm. in an MRI is uh, nuclear magnetic resonance, which was a fundamental experiment. So if you start from you know, Nobel Prizes in 1901 to now, I don't know what fraction, probably the majority have never ended up with something very important, but just understanding how nature works uh, at some level uh, gives us knowledge that can help. Whether yeah. gravitational waves have will have in the future some impact. As I say, I, I kind of doubt it mm. but with because the effect is so small, but I could be wrong. I, I don't know. I, though, because both those examples, uh, the people who did it had no idea. No, I understand. Or anybody else. And, and yeah, and, and I, I, I can, I mean, I'm very much in favor for, of curiosity research. And uh, I can also actually think of some other reasons f for it. And that is that, on a more philosophical level, maybe if our understanding as a human species, understanding of the universe or realities, if you wish, uh, is getting more complete, then it, then it can cause us to be able to think in new directions, a sort of indirect consequence, if you understand what I mean. Yeah. That could lead to practical yeah. things. Yeah, yeah, so, so, yeah, I very much understand what you mean. Um, and it, it must have been wonderful to, to work your whole life with this curiosity-driven research. Yeah. <laughs> have you enjoyed it? Uh, oh, absolutely. <laughs> uh, first, the word curiosity, I think, uh, is interesting because uh, if you ask me for the one quality that kind of uh, enabled me to do what I've done with my life and a quality that I think somehow we're not very good at preserving is curiosity. Mm -hmm. So all little kids are curious. Mm. If you have a kid, True. you know, at the age of five or mm. three or seven, they ask you a lot of questions. And somehow, once we put them through school and make them memorize and learn and so forth, by the time they get to be adults, there's very little curiosity as kind of a uh, an overwhelming part of their personality. We kill it off. I think it's the Bad, the worst thing we do with education. Yeah, true. Somehow we make people, you know, memorize things or read this or do this or that, but we don't stimulate curiosity. Uh, well, it's something that's unique to humans. And, it's, uh, and so uh, why don't we do that? I don't know. But if, what's, if I had to take a personality characteristic that I think somehow I managed 
to preserve in my life that's been kind of why it's been so great to do science for me yeah. is it satisfies my need to to uh, satisfy my curiosity whether I succeed or not at different things but I'm spending my whole life you know being curious about things that that we don't can't answer and try to answer them so I so much agree with with kids. I have a nine year old kid at home, and and it's it's wonderful to see this curiosity in kids. You know, uh, I remember when he fir- when I first explained to him that a person up on the space station is actually not outside of gravity. He's falling down all the time, but outside sort right, of. Right, and right. when he realized that, it was like, wow. <laughs> right. So I, I do so, understand. So your job is to somehow preserve that so when he's 20 years old or 25 yeah, or your yeah, age, yeah. he still has that magic. Yeah, yeah. Which that's... we somehow managed to beat out of young people. Yeah, yeah, that's so true. You must tell me a little bit about your, your childhood. What kind of uh, home did you grow up? In. Yeah. Your parents and yeah, uh, my I was uh, born in the middle part of the U.S. in Omaha, Nebraska, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, my parents uh, were uh, neither where they were working class, mm-hmm. and neither went to college, mm-hmm. so I uh, didn't have the background of. Uh, well, very well-educated parents. They valued education, so you know that got instilled in me. But they didn't. Uh, my my mother uh, told us that she had gotten a scholarship to the University of Nebraska, where mm-hmm. I was born, and uh, uh, but her father wouldn't let her go. You know, mm-hmm. uh, girls not treated the same. That mm-hmm. isn't what girls did, and. Uh, I have a brother, and my brother and I never believed that. You know, it was like a story she told. But then when she died, uh, in her in her um, personal effects, the letter was there that she uh. had. So it was true that she was uh, admitted to college but never went. So my mother never went to college. My father's uh, f- uh, father died when he was only 13, and he was from a, they were, you know, not a well-to-do family, so he had to go to work when he was quite young even. Uh, and so he never went to college either. And uh, so I didn't have that as a, any background. Um, I uh, was a good student from a young age, not so much because I was pushed by my parents, but they, they believed in education and so forth, and, but I didn't, didn't really have that. Mm. Uh, and uh, so I had no real direction when I was young except that I excelled in school without uh, uh, somehow you were being, good dri- at math? being driven. I was one math contest and things when I was young. <laughs> okay. But I didn't really have any sense that that was, that was a game, kind of. Mm-hmm. I didn't really take that seriously. Mm-hmm. And the other game that I uh, uh, played a lot was tennis. I started playing tennis when I was very young. So when I got to be um, first kind of teenage years or something like that. I always, when I was young, I liked to read and uh, I liked uh, storytelling. Mm-hmm. I grew up, we, where my family had moved from Nebraska to uh, Los Angeles or Hollywood, and so uh-huh. there's okay. storytelling all over there. Of course, so, yeah. You know, I grew up with it. Uh, but I like to read and I like storytelling, and I read all my mother's uh, cheap 
pocketbooks, which were mystery stories uh-huh. and science fiction. Eventually, I uh, I uh, uh, discovered real literature when mm-hmm. I was, I don't know what age, 13, 15, 10, 12, somewhere mm-hmm. around there. And uh, I loved write, uh, reading, and then and then I was the editor of the school newspaper, so I loved writing, and I always liked storytelling, being in Hollywood, I guess. <clears throat> so that combination made me uh, think that uh, I was going to be uh, a novelist, not a scientist, mm-hmm. when I was uh, uh, young. Have you written any books? No. So Maybe that, you should. <laughs> okay. So... Uh, <laughs> I I uh, I grew away from that, mm-hmm. uh, but like your memory often serves you. You pick a, an event that caused that, it's, which makes it more dramatic than really. But I had um, I don't know at the age of fifteen, maybe a uh, high school, junior high school uh, literature teacher, maybe the first literature course, and I was given the wrong book to read for me uh, and uh, so it's a great novel that I read that pretty much convinced me that um, that I didn't understand what made a novel great and that I should find something else to do with my life uh-huh. I'm dramatizing it a little more than real but I didn't enjoy it and so maybe I moved in other directions which novel was it and that novel was was uh, Moby Dick uh-huh great novel I've read it since and it's a great novel but it wasn't a great novel for this particular meaning me uh, 14 or 15 year old uh, because it's uh, Moby Dick is one big metaphor and as a 15 year old or so whatever age I was I had no idea what a metaphor was so for me reading this it's a battle between Ahab and the great white whale and the, the Moby Dick and there's a long chapter on the great white whale, which if you understood the meta- it being a metaphor, you read it as a metaphor. If you didn't understand a metaphor, it was the most boring long okay, chapter okay, about a white whale you could imagine. So I uh, uh, found it to be a pretty awful, boring novel, mm. which, which 20 years later I read and loved, but not, okay. not at that age. So anyway... Uh, but then, did, did, uh, can I ask you, did the science fiction books have an impact on you when it comes to science? I think, I think the imagination did. Yeah. The, uh, the poor writing didn't so much, but the, the imagination in them did, uh, but not, uh, not otherwise. Mm-hmm. And, then, and, and then I uh, uh, decided I had to do something other than write, write for a living, and so I was... Uh, pointed toward becoming an engineer. Mm-hmm. So I went to, when I started university, it was to be an engineering student. I went to Berkeley. And What uh, year was this? 1954. One year before Einstein died. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Did you ever meet him? No. no. Okay. No. So 1954. Uh, and... Uh, Actually, more interesting is I never met Oppenheimer, who was around in those years, but I didn't. Okay. Uh, or never saw him even, and let alone met him. Uh, so, uh, so I went to college in 1954. I found engineering almost as boring as uh, Moby Dick. Uh, 
Okay. Uh, and uh, I, and at that time they were discovering the new elementary particles in Berkeley. I took freshman physics and I fell in love with physics and mm -hmm. discovery and the rest was I still am doing the same thing. Yeah, yeah, so I've okay. changed what areas in physics, but the same thing. So you were fascinated by elementary particles. Yeah, that's, that's how I started. Quarks. The idea, the idea of what we're made of and how it interacts. Yeah. And that there are all these mysterious... At that time, they were discovering all these mysterious particles. Didn't even know what quarks were yet. No. Yeah. And so they were just all the time discovering particles, but nobody knew what the heck they were. But you know, the name is from literature, as you know. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> quarks. James, yeah. James Joyce. Yes. Right? And, um, and then I went to that institution because I got my Ph.D. in Berkeley and went to Caltech where mm. Marie Gaumont had used the name and developed the idea of how these particles were all part of this subsystem, which is quarks. Yeah, yeah. But then in my, in my life, mostly because of uh, my scientific life, mostly because I, as I said, I kind of have always been curious I was more driven by not pursuing. I, most great scientists, I think, pursue the same thing in enough depth so they get further than other people and discover something great. I, I've kind of flitted around mm -hmm. from one subject to another uh, by doing the whatever I found the most kind of interesting and intriguing at any given time. Mm -hmm. And uh, luckily, this last one paid off. But mm. I, but I worked in elementary particle physics. I spent ten years looking for whether there's a magnetic monopole. We didn't find one, mm -hmm. and uh, uh, and so forth. So, uh, basically, I've uh, what I've chosen to do is what I found the most interesting and maybe accessible, or hopefully accessible at some time in my life. And, Mm. And some have paid off more than others. Yeah, I see. Can I ask you what what people have influenced you? I mean, did you have any sort of intellectual mentors or, or something? Like no, that? Uh, not really. And and uh, when I was in high school, obviously my, not my parents. Uh, I didn't have any. Uh, obviously not my literature teacher. And I didn't have any mentors particularly that pointed at me. That's probably why I pointed for engineering, which wouldn't have suited. I like engineering in the sense of using it, but mm. it certainly wasn't, let's say, curiosity-driven and mm -hmm. satisfy my, my needs. So I didn't have any sort of mentoring in high school at all except for my tennis coach, mm -hmm. who somehow recognized that the other kids on the tennis team came to me to answer their questions in school. Mm -hmm. So he decided that I was smart and I better go to college and stuff. So he was as close, but he didn't know anything about what right. I should do with myself, just uh, do something. And uh, so I didn't have any mentoring there. And in in um, university, I uh, had a very good uh, advisor who actually won the Nobel Prize in physics. But at that time, he was busy winning his Nobel Prize, so he didn't have much time. Okay. For me, that was Owen Chamberlain, who discovered the antiproton. Uh -huh. okay. So uh, I, I didn't really ever have... I just bumbled my way. I mean, I think it's great to have a mentor, and I wish I would have had a mentor some mm. way, and I lucked out that somehow in bumbling my way, I ended up somewhere good. But uh, I never, never had one and always wished I had had 
Did you ever meet Richard Feynman? Oh, Richard Feynman was the nominally the reason I went from Berkeley to Caltech. So I really, had, yeah, I had um, uh, gotten my PhD. I went to both undergraduate and graduate school in Berkeley, uh, partially because what I did as an undergraduate it was what I wanted to do as a graduate student, other than my classwork work, which was to. Uh, go up where they had the big accelerators and were working above the campus of what's called the Radiation Laboratory. And so when I got, when I was getting my PhD, uh, my uh, wife wasn't through, finished with school yet. She was a graduate student also in Berkeley in uh, social work. And mm. um, so I wasn't uh, anxious to go off to some job and leave her in Berkeley as a student. We had been married the year before. <clears throat> so at that time, it wasn't such a big deal to to stay. So I stayed as a postdoc, but not um, to do a research project because I, then we'd be the other way. I'd get in a research project, she'd be finished, and I, mm. I couldn't leave. So, um, so instead, I uh, went to work as a Ph.D. with a nominal postdoc, but working on the particle accelerator that they had there, the Bevatron. And uh, somebody from Caltech was looking for a postdoc at that time and came around and found me, I, I don't know exactly why, and asked me if I was interested in coming to Caltech as a postdoc. And I said, no, because I'm not ready to leave yet. And, uh, and he said, well, why don't you come down and give a seminar anyway? And <laughs> I had never given a seminar. Mm -hmm. And so I thought that was a nice idea. And so I went to Caltech and gave a seminar. And when I went to Caltech, I'd never been on the campus. I went to Caltech and found the room. And actually, some people showed up for the seminar. And just before I gave it, Feynman walked in and sat in the front row. And I was probably uh, totally intimidated. But, you know, your memory does whatever your memory does. So that's not the part that I remember. Uh, so instead— You knew of him well at that oh, time. Oh, of course. Yeah. Yeah. And also of Murray Gelman, who, yeah. developed, of course, they were both there. And uh, but anyway, uh, Feynman was sitting in the front row, and I I don't remember exactly giving the seminar itself. But afterwards, people ask you questions, including Feynman, and pretty soon, everybody just drifted away except Feynman, and I talked to him for another ten minutes or so. It seemed like longer, and <laughs> uh, and so. And, you know, he was like an idol. And so yeah. when I went back to Berkeley, my feet were, you know, off the ground <laughs> some course. distance. And when I came up, I told my wife that uh, if they offered me a job, even though I wasn't looking for a job they were recruiting, uh, that I'd have to go there. And, in fact, they did. And they managed to let me put it off until she finished her degree, wow. and then we went there. Fantastic. And that's been my only job. So I was okay. at Caltech. My so you worked career. with Feynman after that. Yeah, we we became very friendly. Uh -huh. uh, and uh, because I think he made a lot of contribution to to uh, uh, inspiring people. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he was a theorist and an experimentalist, but mm. he was interested in uh, neutrinos, which is what I worked on for mm. some time. And uh, um, also, we we went to I traveled with him to meetings and knew mm. he lived only a few blocks from where we mm. lived and. I had lunch with him almost every day for 25 years, I suppose. And, <laughs> How uh, was he as a person? Um, incredible. 
I think, mm -hmm. uh, for me. Uh, I never had a mentor, but I had Feynman nearby at some yeah. point in my life, which is better. Uh, there's a lot of stories about Feynman because he was so colorful and mm. so forth. Uh, but they miss the real person that was there. He's a, he was an incredibly deep-feeling person. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, in addition to having much, much more curiosity than me, <laughs> and I talked about curiosity a while ago, I, so I used to travel with him and and we went to a meeting, and I remember going to the, I'll give you two incidents. I remember going to the L.A. airport before you kind of got your boarding passes now on the line mm. and so forth. So you stood in line to check in. And no sooner did we check in, did we get in line, and our line had 10 people in it, and the next line had 10 people in it. He started a conversation with a person in the line next, a woman, not, not beautiful, or it wasn't mm. that. Uh, but asking her, it's just typical of him, of why she had chosen to be in that line and we had chosen to be in this line, <laughs> did she imagine somehow that that person who was behind the desk was going to be faster? Than, uh, it was just this kind of never-ending never curiosity. Fantastic. Yeah. yeah. We're and actually it, publishing here in Sweden quite soon. We're publishing uh, his book, The Pleasure of Finding Things Out. Swedish. Which is the same idea, then. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And we're, so we're translating it to Swedish and publishing it on, on my publishing company. Uh, because I think, I mean, it's so important to inspire young people to, yeah. into science these yeah. days, especially these days. Yeah. I, I mentioned we lived close together, and it was about, it was up a hill in what's called Altadena, above Pasadena, where Caltech is, and it was about... Uh, you know, a 40-minute walk or something. So you didn't do it every day. or It was uphill going home. But occasionally uh, the weather was good or your car didn't work or something, and you walked back and forth. We were only, we only lived about a block or so from mm -hmm. each other. And one day I, I walked into Caltech, and he asked me how I came. And there was one main street, and, of course, I'd, the, the question seemed silly. Mm -hmm. And I mentioned, so I said, I walked down Allen, which is the name of the street, and over, and, you know, <laughs> wondering why he's asking the question. And then he proceeded to tell me 20 different ways he'd walk, because he, instead of saying in during the time, and what was on these different routes. <laughs> and I had just gone straight down the obvious way. Yeah, he yeah. had, in the meantime, just because of the way he thought, you know, explored all. <laughs> these are just, they're not, they're just incidental, but kind of just the way he, the way yeah. he was. It sounds like it meant a lot to you oh, during yeah, those years. Yeah. And, um, Fantastic. And then, as I said, he, he, he also could be very uh, personal. I, had an, uh, I, I mentioned I played tennis and I played squash, and I, I had a knee injury when I was at Caltech and needed a knee surgery. And, and at that time, they didn't have orthoscopic surgery. It was before orthoscopic surgery. Mm -hmm. So you spent two or three days in the hospital, you know, while they stitched, while they it got well enough so you could limp, use crutches and stuff, and uh, he was my only colleague. Uh, my relatives, of course, came, but, but they came from Caltech and visited me at the hospital. Not that I asked him to; it's just the way he was. So he was also he could also be fantastic, real, yeah, real mm. personal. So, and he died too early. Yep, he did. That's really sad. Yeah. Um, Going back to, to the LIGO project a little bit, did, did you, I mean, a lot of people that I came in contact with were quite 
convinced that the Nobel Prize would go to the gravitational waves. Were you also? Did you believe that would happen, 2017? Uh, well, a lot of people said that, so I, I took that. I, you know, I had to take that seriously. Mm. I thought by that by that time, which is, I think, at the 99.999, where people were convinced that they existed. Mm. You know, it was I knew more because we hadn't yet announced the second thing that I told uh-huh. you. Yeah, but. Uh, Nobel Prizes are often awarded many years later. So I thought, if you ask me honestly, I thought this would eventually win a Nobel Prize, but Mm. whether it would be done in 2017. Yeah, maybe not so fast, you thought. Yeah, Yeah. I see what you mean. Because we we actually published that year, um, you know, Jana Levin's book. Yes, yes, yes. Do you know? know Yes, I know her. Yeah, we published that in Swedish. uh, And... uh, we we had it ready for the Nobel Prize announcements, so we went out with the press release telling about the book the same uh, second uh, as they made the presentation. Yeah. So we were betting on that, in a sense. Um, so so uh, what, <clears throat> just I have just a few more questions. What, what do you what do you res- I mean, are you still researching gravitational waves yeah, now? Uh, okay. So I don't have as much time as I once did. Uh, there's a lot of demands that kind of come with getting a prize like the Nobel. Mm, of course. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it's discovering gravitational waves proved a, uh, a prediction of Einstein's, and that's what we got the award for, mm. if you read it. But I think its real value, and I always thought from the beginning, wasn't so much proving Einstein's concept of gravitational waves, but the fact that it gives us uh, a new way to look at the universe yeah, uh, through gravity instead of through some form of electromagnetic radiation. And, um, and that's proving, starting to prove to be true. And so I think the potential, it'll take a long time, like it took to do astronomy and mm. to do it in all the different ways. There'll be a space mission and so mm. on. But I think the potential for the future scientifically uh, is fantastic. The fact that everything we know about the universe comes from one form or another, electromagnetic waves, and only 5% or 4% of what's out there gives Mm. electromagnetic radiation, and we're using that to determine everything from how the universe began to what's out there from Mm. a small piece of what's there. Now we have, in principle, a different way to look there's gravity everywhere a different way to look at uh, at the universe and mm. i think it's uh certain that we're going to learn about a quite different universe by seeing as it's probed by gravity and it's taken 400 years from galileo mm. to do it electromagnetically so it's not next year but i think the mm. the future potential of Using gravitational waves to understand the universe is uh, is is inevitable. I just think it's not just a dream. It'll, mm-hmm. it'll happen. And uh, the second is that uh, we're all curious how it all began. We use the word Big Bang, and, mm. and we have various um, ideas about how it began, but one should realize that we everything we know comes from some form of electromagnetic radiation and it was all absorbed in the early universe so you can only go back to 
400,000 years after the Big Bang. Mm. Everything we say before that is inferred from what we see now. Mm. But gravitational waves don't get absorbed. So uh, they, in principle, can, we don't know how to do it now, but mm. can go back to the early instance mm. of, of the Big Bang. And so in addition to understanding the universe we live in, understanding how it all began and stuff, I think the real ultimate instrument mm. to do that is gravitational waves. Last question. This year, the Nobel Prize was awarded the exoplanet discovery. Do you think that we ever will find life out there? Yeah. It was awarded just to, to make sure it's not lost in the noise. It was for a developer of cosmology yeah. and for exoplanets. That's true. And the developer of cosmology was a fantastic award, I think, because yeah. cosmology has become a real field. Uh, Will we ever? I, mm. I I don't know. What's your guess? What's your guess? Um, my guess is no. Okay. Uh, we may, I think, understand or put to rest the question of whether there's conditions out somewhere that could give life like ours uh, by doing more than what these exoplanet guys have done, but find mm. a planet that maybe has the ingredients to have an atmosphere and temperature and so forth that could do organic mm. uh, and could create life. So you know that it's possible. But otherwise, the fact that almost anywhere like that is going to be many light years away mm. makes me think that yeah, we're never going to really be able to explore mm. it. So Too sad. <laughs> okay, thank you so much for You're coming welcome. to this. Thank You're you. Welcome.